My name is Justin DeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're doing our big 2020 year-end wrap-up. It's been quite a year, hasn't it, Will? Yes. What happened this year? I don't know, man. It just moved past in a blur. I don't even remember any of the highlights, <laughs> movie and or otherwise. I saw so many of the big movies this year. I saw Sonic the Hedgehog. I saw Birds of Prey. I saw Underwater with Kristen Stewart. Oh, gosh. What else did I see? I saw Doolittle. I saw The Grudge. And then it all came crashing down. That's right. Because of the pandemic. So we all spent the rest of our time at home getting depressed, feeling bad, knowing that the world is ending around us because elected officials won't do anything out of fear and just stupidity. And now here we are talking about movies once more, trying to, uh, I don't know, sum up a whole terrible, terrible year. Annually, this is our most popular episode, and it's going to be particularly hard this year because I think... I don't want to speak for you, but I know that I at least saw far fewer new movies this year than I think I have in any year since I was 17, I want to say. I mean, God. I was looking at Letterboxd because you can just kind of cycle things and um, categorize them by year. And yeah, you're right. I did not see many films in 2020, especially any films that I'm like, oh, yeah, this was the great ones. And as I look at the list of movies that I did see this year that were new movies, I mean, it's a roll call of shame. It's Irresistible. It's Tenet. It's uh, fucking Rebecca on Netflix. It's Mank. You know, movies that are not, I'm just going to say, beyond any top 10 list of mine. Oh, definitely Tenet and Mank are appearing on some people's top 10 lists. I've heard podcasts be like, well, Mank will definitely be in the best picture category. It's like, did you watch the movie? <laughs> like, no one has Mank fever. People barely like it. I definitely found that I had less motivation to keep up with the current cinema. And I feel a bit bad about that, I have to say, because I know that a lot of good work was done. You know, I know that there are a lot of movies like I, I I'm still meaning to see first cow for instance it'll be slow it'll be engaging you'll be very happy that you watch it it may be your favorite film of the year but getting there that's the journey and wouldn't it be great to see a movie like that in a theater you know where you can make a night of it you can't take out your phone you can't be distracted by anything you can just be encompassed by kelly reichardt's vision which uh right now we can't do exactly and also new movies are competing on my roku with every other movie ever made, you know, <laughs> it all becomes part of the same soup when it's on your TV screen. So I did spend a lot of time uh, watching some of the classics, some of the not so classics. So we're taking kind of a different approach on the show this year. We're going to say a couple of movies that we liked this year, a couple of new movies we liked, not necessarily the best movies of the year, but just movies that we may remember as being good this year and that we want to talk about. And we're also going to talk about some of our big discoveries. (laughs) Yes. I hope, Will, that you're not going to have any Chaplin films in that list or anything like that. No, although I did watch some of his films this year, but no, I will be sticking strictly to first time viewings. Although, I may bring up some movies that we talked about on the podcast because this podcast is a good venue for discovery for me. Actually, looking through the movies that I watched this year from whenever, I was shocked that like I hadn't found any like bigger discovery through this podcast. And I was like, am I just not working hard enough? So I hope that you'll remind me of some of those titles and I'll go, oh, yeah, that was great. So to get started, we'll alternate between discoveries and films that came out in 2020 or 
you know, 2019, you know how film releasing stuff goes. So first off, Will, what is a discovery that you made this year? One of the things I did this year was uh, do a real deep dive into the Something Weird video catalog. You know, we did an episode on the beloved Seattle-based distributor of cinematic ephemera, something weird video a couple weeks ago. You know, there's so much to discover, much of it bad, much of it horrible, but every now and then you get like just a little nugget of gold. Something Weird Video has a distribution partnership with the American Genre Film Archive. Uh, the American Genre Film Archive has been putting out, you know, remastered Blu-rays of some of their movies. And they did a collection of anti-drug and anti-alcohol scare films. And there was one film on that package that really leapt out at me. A movie that I guess you can say is kind of bad, but is also uh, really beautiful, like really powerful in a way. It's called The Trip Back. It is credited to a director named Ralph Weisinger. And, you know, he's probably just some like hack who made, you know, classroom scare films. But it's this record of this woman named Flory Fisher, who was the scion of a wealthy family who became a heroin addict. And she clawed her way back from addiction and spent much of her remaining years going around to schools and delivering lectures about the perils of drug abuse. This woman was the inspiration for the Amy Sedaris character in Strangers with Candy. And uh, this a record of one of her speeches, you know, she's just so extreme. Like she starts at 11 and she keeps going. She yells all of these really alarming stories about, you know, when she was sleeping in bathrooms and sleeping on shit-covered prison floors and just awful story after awful story and no structure, no build, but just a feverish intensity. It reminded me a little bit of the Jesus performances that Klaus Kinski would give. So mostly just screaming then. Yeah, and this short film to me was like, it's what I always want to find when I'm like trawling through the Something Weird video catalog. I want to find a diamond in the rough. I want to find something with like, a lot of passion and a lot of heart, even if it doesn't have a huge amount of sense. What's your first discovery, Justin? So uh, I was looking at this list and I realized that like four of these on here are actually horror films. Two of them coming from the fact that this year I did a 24 hour horror movie marathon and my goal was to watch all movies that I had never seen before. Being someone who has seen many a film, it was very tough. So I actually found some discoveries. Like, for example, we watched this one movie called Khan. It's a Bollywood film from 1999, directed by Ram Gopal Varma. And it's a really simple chamber piece. It's a woman is alone on a rainy night and a guy shows up. And he's weird and he won't leave her alone. And it only escalates from there. It is a super fun film. Almost everyone that watched it said it was their favorite film of the night. It's one of the rare Bollywood films that is 90 minutes. And it really made me interested in this director's career, Ram Gopal Varma, who has 60 films to his credit. Never heard his name before. And I just kind of stumbled on Khan because I was looking for an Indian horror film that I could watch. I saw that, by the way, that Netflix had a Bollywood horror category and I would really love to delve into that a little bit i mean there's bollywood movies all over the place now specifically amazon prime and netflix and the best way to do it is by going on letterbox there's like on the sidebar now you can see where movies are streaming so you can actually watch them and you can even program like what services do i have 
and it'll tell you like, oh, this movie's available or not. That's how I watch a lot of Indian films these days because it'll tell me like, oh, it's on Netflix or it's on Amazon or it's on Eros Now, which is its own, you know, Indian streaming service. So yeah, Khan, big recommendation. Moving on to new films. What's one that you like this year, Will? The one that I liked that was new the most that I saw was Days by Tsai Ming Lang, who we did an episode on not that long ago. He's the great Taiwanese minimalist filmmaker. He said a few years ago that his movie Stray Dogs was going to be his last narrative fiction film, but he returned with this movie Days, which played, I think, at the Berlin Film Festival in February, and it's been kind of circulating online ever since. And it's minimal even by his standards. The plot is very uh, oblique, but it features his longtime muse, Li Kangsheng, as a man who is suffering some uh, unexplained ailment and seems to be in great pain, who also lives alone, lives very isolated, and meets up for a meeting with a poor itinerant masseur slash sex worker. And they have an encounter that leads to a sort of unlikely connection in the midst of uh, all this loneliness, in the midst of all this suffering. And of course, you know, the way I'm describing it makes it sound like it has a lot more plot than it actually does. It's typical of Sai Ming Lang, where like, you sit with the images and you just sit in them, you know, like you're in a uh, fishbowl, basically. Would you say it's one of your favorite of his films? I actually increasingly think it is, even though it's also one of one of the most uneventful of his films. <laughs> um, it, it, and, I'm, and I realize that's not the easiest sell. But I found it a very relevant film for the times that that we live in. I feel like it captures something of like both the suffering and the loneliness and the alienation that people are feeling as well as the possibilities for unlikely connection that that still exist in this context. And, uh, you know, uh, Li Kang-Sheng, wh- what a backside the man has developed over the years. I mean, what can I say? It's it's thick and meaty, and he, he shows it off. Yeah, you see a lot of it. And you, got, and, and you gotta be impressed by that. So speaking of filmmakers we've done on this podcast, oh, whoa, Shion Sono has a new movie, and oh boy, is it a good one. It's Red Post on Escher Street, a film that just came out. I had never heard about it. No trailers, no nothing. And it's my favorite kind of Shion Sono film. It's one about filmmaking in this specific case it is a time displaced narrative that follows seemingly 24 people as they all go for an audition for a new hotshot director's film and as you see these auditions happen you see what happened before you see what happened after you see their backgrounds it's the closest that Shion Sono has ever gotten to day for night it's not as violent as you usually associate with Shion Sono yes there is a murder and yes one of the characters is a ghost but it's like a really intimate look into what goes into being an actor, motivations, not making it, what kind of propels someone. And it all climaxes in this amazing sequence on one day of filming where all of these disparate characters that you've seen throughout this two hour and a half running time finally get together and it just explodes in emotion in the way that only a Shion Sono movie can. I feel like it would have probably been talked about more if there was a festival scene going on right now. It's also one that falls between the cracks because there's there's no gore. There's no violence. It is a strictly dramatic Shion Sono film, and it's one of his best in a long time, especially considering that his Nicolas Cage film is coming out soon. So it, this one will completely be forgotten. <laughs> but Red Post on Escher Street. Highly recommend it. You mentioned that it was kind of his day for night. I actually kind of would have thought that Why Don't You Play in Hell was a bit like that, because that's a movie that has a lot of exuberance 
uh, around the act of filmmaking. How does this compare to that one? I would specifically say that it's more of his day for night because it feels more like a slice of life. While um, Why Don't You Play in Hell is like a big explosion of passion. And it's focused on these specific characters, the kind of fragmented nature of Red Post on Escher Street and the kind of looks into the lives of all these people is more reflective of the Francois Truffaut film. And so it feels like a take on this kind of material filmmaking, which he supposedly also did another movie he directed in 2020, 2019, The Forest of Love, which I didn't get a chance to check out. But this is, from what I've read, the tamer version of that. And because of that, I think it's actually more interesting to see him take a more uh, meditative, but still very funny and exuberant look on the filmmaking process, specifically from the perspective of actors, as opposed to necessarily the filmmaker. Well, getting back to discoveries, I had a good time this year on the podcast filling in some blind spots with the great filmmaker Samuel Fuller. And probably the one that I liked the most that I that I watched for the first time for the podcast was Park Row, a passionate drama, like all of Samuel Fuller's films, about a newspaper war in New York in the 1880s between a well-established newspaper and a, a young upstart newspaper. One of the things that I love so much about this movie is, you know, Fuller came from a journalism background himself, and, and you can see his passion in this film, but like, he came from a particular era of journalism, and he was a real manly man journalist, you know? Uh, he, he loved, you know, big, heaving printing presses, and he loved being covered in ink, and he loved... Uh, getting out and having fist fights with the rival reporters and he loved standing up for the principles of journalism even if it gets you fired i just love being in this world with sam fuller even though when you watch park row you're like what are the politics of this newspaper and it's like we don't have politics we just want to print the news and it's like uh, no that's not how it works <laughs> that's how it works in that movie the two-fisted in-your-face film that's just a rush of adrenaline that by the end when you sit back and you question like but why did he want to be a newspaper man you're it's like it doesn't matter because they're so caught up in it while it's happening for a discovery that i made this year uh and it's a very minor film it's called the deeper you dig it came out in 2019 and what's interesting about it is that it's directed by a family john adams his wife toby poser and their daughter uh, zelda adams are essentially the only crew and actors on the picture and it's like this kind of uh, very low-key ghost story about someone gets killed and then uh, the ghost is haunting the person that did the killing and just the texture and the fact that you know that it was actually made by a family with no other support makes it that much more interesting and I also want to highlight it because it's part of a kind of wave of films that Arrow Video, the Blu-ray DVD and theatrical distributor have been doing they've been putting out these big special editions for more modern day films that wouldn't usually get that kind of attention, but they put like a bunch of commentaries. They put the other films that the directors have made and stuff like The Deeper You Dig, I feel like would have just gone directly to Amazon if a company like Arrow hadn't grabbed it and given it the deluxe treatment. So high props to them for doing that this year. They also did it with like um, The Michigan Lake Monster and Jesus Takes the Highway. It seems to be a new initiative they have and I want to encourage it and encourage people to check it out as much as possible. I believe like the deeper you dig, like a lot of Arrow titles, it goes to Amazon Prime as well. So you can check it out. If you want to explore it more, you can pick it up on Blu-ray. Well, I said that I had trouble motivating myself to watch new movies this year. And so, of course, a lot of the new movies that I watched were the ones that were made by the directors who I already love. 
So I did manage to find time to watch three of Abel Ferreira's new movies this year. <laughs> Abel Ferreira can't stop making movies. I love it. I mean, the man cannot get funding uh, and and that has just turned him into the Jess Franco of Italy. <laughs> the movie that I'd like to highlight is Tommaso, which uh, I think debuted at film festivals towards the end of 2019 and received some kind of distribution in 2020. And this movie is typical of his late work in that it is filmed at his apartment in Rome, and it features his real-life wife and his real-life daughter, and it features an Abel Ferreira surrogate character played by Willem Dafoe. Defoe plays an expatriate American filmmaker in Rome who's recovering from an ill-spent life of substance abuse and broken relationships, trying to settle into a life of domesticity. This is a movie that I actually feel like I underrated a little bit when I reviewed it on Letterboxd. It has stuck with me ever since I've seen it. I like the way that it just sort of observes the protagonist's life. I like the way that it captures the everyday challenges of cohabitation. And I like its perspective on kind of the bittersweet nature of leaving an old life behind. What will Abel Ferreira do if he ever loses his muse, his Lena Ramey, William Dafoe? <laughs> I mean, gosh, yeah, who knows? I feel like Abel is only able to make as many movies as he does thanks to William Dafoe's involvement. I also think it's great that this is yet another movie where Abel Ferreira has his current wife or girlfriend like having a sex scene. Uh, you know, it goes back to Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, Dangerous Game, New Rose Hotel, 444 Last Day on Earth. I'm sure I'm missing a few. This is clearly a kink of Abel's. Absolutely. New film-wise, at the end of this year, I looked and went, are there any Canadian movies that I should check out? The thing about Canadian films is that sometimes they seemingly never come out. When I worked at the Canadian Screen Awards, I saw a bunch of great Canadian films that, looking into them recently, seemingly have never been released. And I saw those movies three to four years ago. So it's a little tough, but I stumbled on one called The Kid Detective. And this piqued my interest because it was written and directed by Evan Morgan, who co-wrote The Dirties, which we've talked about before. It was a Matt Johnson film from 2013, and he was supposedly Matt Johnson's creative partner, and they had a falling out. But he was able to bring together a package that allowed him to write and direct and what ended up coming to the screen is like this low-key, almost Shane Black noir starring Adam Brody as a detective who used to be one of those like you know encyclopedia brown style guys but now he's grown up and he's a loser and somebody comes and approaches him and says hey my boyfriend was murdered can you figure out what happened to him it's super low-key it's clever it's funny it ends way more dramatically than you think it would and it's just like a well-rounded surprising motion picture that I feel that due to its generic title and cover art and the fact that it seems like there's a million movies about kid detectives out there that it will just fall through the cracks but I highly recommend people checking it out especially if you like stuff like uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys it fits within that mold but it's also about a loser and it's much more low-key because of course it's a Canadian motion picture well returning to discoveries the thing that I love about Hong Kong cinema of the 70s, 80s, and 90s is it seems like a bottomless well, you know? 
uh, or or a well that constantly replenishes. I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not good with metaphors today. Like I remember a, a few years ago seeing a marathon of like five Hong Kong action movies from the 80s and 90s, and like some of them were better than others, but all of them had like fight scenes in them that if they came out in a movie today would just be instantly historic, instantly iconic. They were making them every week back then. It felt like this little port city just had this energy that was coursing through its veins in those decades. Now, the one that I'm going to mention is an acknowledged classic of the genre, but also a movie that it's quite possible that people haven't seen, which is Writing Wrongs by Corey Yoon, also known as Above the Law. It took me a long time to get to see it because it didn't have Jackie in it, didn't have Sammo in it. But it does have Yuen Biao, their old buddy, who plays uh, a, a lawyer who decides to take the law into his own hands. Plot doesn't matter. Has some of the best fight scenes I've ever seen in a movie, including some with important cinema club favorite Cynthia Rothrock. And I would particularly like to highlight the fight scene in the middle of the movie that takes place in a parking garage where a car like drags Yuen Biao across the garage right by the wheel this scene, everybody should know this scene. It should be instantly historic. And it's just one of many incredible scenes that are happening in movies or were happening in movies every week in Hong when Kong. When you told me you hadn't seen it, it was like listening to an episode of the film spotting. And they're like, finally, we're going to watch a Marx Brothers movie. Never seen them. And I'm like, what the hell? I know. It's absolutely shameful that I hadn't seen this, even though it got a big push by a Dragon Dynasty. That was mostly my surprise because it did get a North American DVD release. You know, what can I say? But hey, better late than never. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I'm just joking. There's no shame in not seeing a movie and seeing it for the first time. It happens to all of us. So as far as more discoveries go, I love it when somebody that I know really likes movies recommends something to me. And that happened. Uh, someone was like, have you seen Screenplay? And I was like, no, no, I don't know what it is. It's a 1985 film and it's black and white. It's from a one-time director, Rufus Butler Cedar, and he's most famous for creating life tiles, which are the glass-walled murals that appear to come to life when like people walk by. And this is the only film that he directed, and it is a surreal kind of you know, film about the process of writing a screenplay. It's kind of like Barton Fink. It's like a guy moves to the big city, L.A., moves into like a uh, apartment complex, runs by George Kuchar. Whoa. He is just kind of driven insane and the script that he's writing starts to happen in real life. It is a film that looks like nothing else. It kind of looks like a Kuchar brother film. The whole sets are all kind of expressionist like, like they're all built out of cardboard and stuff like that. It's filled with like a bunch of famous underground faces. It's also super violent. Like the, the murders that happen are genuinely shocking. And because it's shot in 1985, it's on like really Really grainy black and white stock. Another reason that I had never heard about it is that it was put out on video by Troma. So I just dismissed it out of hand. <laughs> Even though in his book, All That I Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger, Lloyd Coffin says in the back that Screenplay is the best movie that he, Troma ever distributed. Because he didn't make it, they just distributed it. So I would highly recommend people check this one out, Screenplay. Will, especially, I think you would like it. It sounds amazing. I'm, I can't believe I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I never heard about it either i think it's goofy title also kind of puts you off but uh it's one of those great pictures as well is that like it's uh written directed uh shot by the main guy and he also stars in it so it's a true auteurist piece what else you got that's new for us i had a much better time than i expected to have with the new sofia coppola movie on the rocks which is 
as simple a story as you can get in a film. It's about a uh, a young career woman who's approaching middle age, played by Rashida Jones, is married to a young up-and-comer, a young entrepreneur who has very exciting things happening in his, in his career, played by the great Marlon Wayans <laughs> from Fifty Shades of Black, uh, which I just saw, by the way. And she begins to suspect that Marlon Wayans may be having an affair. And this suspicion is egged on by her wayward asshole father, played by Bill Murray in an extremely Murray-ish performance. It's a very low-key film. It's a very low-stakes film. I think what I appreciated about it most was the depiction of this character played by Murray and the relationship between him and his daughter, which felt very real and true, and also like a relationship that I don't often see depicted in film. You know, typically a character like this would have a big redemption, and he doesn't. He's too old for that. He will never change. He's an asshole. And the Rashida Jones character essentially has to make the choice, do you want to have a relationship with an asshole like this? And he's somebody whose assholishness qualities and his good qualities are very densely intertwined. You don't have one without the other. It's like, he is he is what he is, and take it or leave it. So I found it surprisingly uh, moving, I would say. Yeah, I didn't check that one out, because I was like, uh, I feel like I know what this is going to be. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe you do. I feel like it had a somewhat lukewarm reception, but I was on the much more on the positive end. Listen, I'm waiting for that Tony Erdman remake to come out. <laughs> you know what I liked about this one? I liked this one more than Tony Erdman, because it was a little bit less aggressively funny. Oh, those sweet Tony Erdman birds. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, one film that I saw the poster and I think I saw the trailer for it and I was like, I know what this is going to be and didn't check it out until someone said, oh, no, it's actually good. It's Survival Skills. So uh, Survival Skills is a movie that is pitched as what looks like a Tim and Eric kind of parody of like 80s training videos. Specifically, it's a cop training video of how you deal with being a police officer. It's narrated and hosted by Stacey Keach. And who doesn't love Stacey Keach? And it follows this kind of smile empty figure as he has to deal with domestic abuse and from when you hear that premise you're like oh god it's gonna be like absurdist and like you know breaking the format stuff like that nope not really it is somber and super emotional without ever not working within the context of a training video that you would see in the 80s so it has that kind of tiresome sheen but it works amazingly well because of where it's going and what it's trying to document. So that is survival skills. What's another discovery you made, Will? I would maybe call this a bit of a rediscovery because I was familiar with him and I certainly would have said that I respected him. But this year I developed a whole new love and appreciation for Michelangelo Antonioni. I watched La Notte and I watched Le Clis recently and I'd particularly like to highlight La Notte, which stars Marcello Mastroianni and Jean Moreau as a couple who very much towards the end of their relationship. He's a novelist who's basically sold himself into hack work. She's his uh, disillusioned wife. Uh, the movie is sparked by when they visit an old friend of theirs who's on his deathbed, who is an old left-wing critic, and it sort of underlines for them the emptiness of their comfortable bourgeois lives. You know, that classic Antonioni stuff. So, Will, have you finally reached the point that you can see yourself reflected in these characters? Yes, for sure. I definitely saw some some of myself in this, although I would say that... You're not a hack, Will. Don't worry. Uh, although I, I certainly have done hack work. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Pick up the monthly issue of Toronto Life. Oh, actually, you know, it was funny. The second half of this movie, most of the second half of the movie takes place during this party. And as I was watching it in quarantine, I was kind of like, I know this is supposed to be like spiritually empty, but fuck, I would really love to be at this party right now. I would love to, I would love to just get out. You know, in addition to the themes of Antonioni's films, which I found very powerful, I was... I was really overwhelmed by his visual style in these movies, where the movies are just so devoid of prettiness. It's concrete, it's gray skies, it's very symmetrical. But isn't that its own form of prettiness, though? It's beauty, for sure. Like, the films are just, like, stunningly beautiful in their ugliness and banality. You didn't think of Orson Welles being like, I can fucking make an Antonioni movie if I wanted to? Well, uh, to quote Mr. William Friedkin, Orson Welles in his later years wasn't worthy of licking Antonioni's jockstrap. Antonioni made films that made me think about the human condition. I don't actually think that about Wells, but I always think about that when I think about Antonioni. I'm actually a big fan of Antonioni, so uh, we should definitely do a podcast about him uh, sooner rather than later. I would love to. Let's do uh, it. A discovery that I made is a movie that I've known for about for a long time because it has an amazing VHS box art and that I watched during our 24-hour horror movie marathon that I did, and it's Devil Story, a 1986 film directed by Bernard Lonois. It's a French movie about, I can't even explain to you what it's about. It's seemingly about a bunch of people that, you know, their car breaks down and they end up at a big spooky castle. But then it's not really about that because it just kind of follows other characters, including a screaming bald Nazi man with a shotgun. (laughs) This movie, me and the people that were watching it, we were dying of laughter of how like wild it is and just all over the place. One plot line is just this guy that really wants to kill a neighing horse horse and it keeps cutting back to him like a Tim and Eric bit for like the full 90 minutes of the movie. It's a movie that it has the balls to do the classic Ah, now we're looping back around and the movie's starting over again. It is just pure madness that I love discovering. And supposedly, actually, it's been kind of confirmed, Vinegar Syndrome is putting it out on Blu-ray in the next few months. Oh, looking forward to that. I always love it when Vinegar Syndrome actually discovers something worth seeing. <laughs> oh, harsh burn. That's Sorry, that sounded like a harsher burn than I meant it to. But it's like, you know, Vinegar Syndrome has their slate and you can tell the ones that are like, you know, the really cool discoveries and the ones that are like, yeah, they're like, uh, this is a slasher film, I guess, from the 80s. People haven't really talked about it because it's not that good. Here it is in a slipcase. And, you know, that's fine. You got to keep the lights on. I I buy them all like a sucker. Yeah. I mean, hey, uh, I'm sure they put out a very nice edition of Hobgoblins. <laughs> and now returning to new movies this year, I would, of course, like to highlight Vanguard with Jackie Chan. Uh, no, I, I'm just that kidding. That is not a new discovery. <laughs> but I would like to highlight another very digital looking movie, which is Spree the latest film by Eugene Kotliarenko, who made Wobble Palace. Does this director have you in his pocket, Will? He does not, but he is somebody who uh, has me kind of excited. I don't want to I don't want to jinx it, but I feel like he's somebody who like um sort of gets uh extremely online uh millennial culture in a way that I haven't seen very much. I only say that because I think one of his movies Wobble Palace made your top 10 list a few years ago and I saw him lurking in the comments on Twitter. Oh, as well. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw Spree as well and it's great. What is it about, Will? Well, it's about a, a wannabe viral vlogger who is also an Uber driver who decides to go viral by having a killing spree on camera. The setup of the movie, I think, is like, you know, verges on lame. When I heard that this film was all from like 
dash cams and phones and stuff like that i was like oh no please no yeah it sounds like like the modern day version of series seven the contenders <laughs> yep. but i think what like makes the movie really work is just how immaculately detailed it is oh my god all those comments that come up on screen as stuff happens mm, so good yeah like it's really fun and the whole character the supporting character played by sashir zamada as a kind of like viral twitter famous comedian so when i saw in your letterbox review you're like i know people like this and i was like huh, i wonder if and then i watched the movie and i'm like i know exactly who he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> yes at the end of the movie where there's the montage too real man yeah you see that new yorker article it's incredible and i also think like the central performance by joe keery who i understand is from stranger things uh very good too uh, so yeah, I think it's just a really good time. I have another Indian film to recommend. This one did not come out in 2020, it came out in 2019. But to our, us North Americans, these movies are new because <laughs> it takes a while to get here. And this one was recommended by an Indian critic to Peter Kaplowski when Peter was in India as a Midnight Madness programmer does. He, uh, someone told him, oh yeah, forget the movies you just mentioned. This is the one you should check out. It's called, I'm going to say the title wrong, Kaithi. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. K-A-I-T-H-I. And essentially the premise is a guy just got out of jail and he just wants to go see his kid, classic Con Air stuff, when he is somehow put in charge of driving a truck filled with poisoned police officers to a hospital over one long night as a whole bunch of gangs try to come after him. So it's a mixture of wages of fear and the warriors. <laughs> and it's just a great Indian movie that when we went looking for it, it's just on YouTube. I believe it's on Netflix or Amazon now. And so I would highly ch recommend checking it out. The director, based on this film alone, he went his next film that was supposed to come out this year but was delayed called master he uh made was vj one of the big indian stars so obviously like this was a big launching pad for him and more people should check it out kaisi k-a-i-t-h-i directed by lokesh kanagar raj Oof, boy had some trouble with that name because i'm bad at pronouncing things oh that sounds great and i gotta say one of the many things that i missed during quarantine is uh, being able to go see indian movies with me you, too Justin. we had just started doing it and it was so amazing uh maybe one day again yeah in five to ten years from now we could start doing it again if those places still exist which they may not uh my last big discovery for you is routine pleasures by jean-pierre goran from 1986 Jean-Pierre Gorin, you may know as the guy who collaborated, uh, Justin knows, as the guy who collaborated with Jean-Luc Godard in the early 1970s, making some of Godard's most impenetrable films. Did you see somebody on Twitter found that because Jean-Pierre Gorin is a teacher, you can find him on like ratemyteach.com or something like that. And the reviews are very funny. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> well, they're extremely divided between people who are like, what a privilege to have Mr. Goran teaching And who me. is this old fuddy-duddy who thinks everything sucks now? And you know, maybe there's a little truth to both of those things. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've seen the films that he made with Godard. They are very difficult. They are very confrontational. And so I wasn't prepared for how sort of warm and funny Routine Pleasures was. It's a documentary slash essay film about guys in California who have a model train club. They have a little clubhouse that they go to every Tuesday, and they have this really immaculate model train, uh, very detailed, uh, that, that they play. 
the movie goes back and forth between these guys and Goren's reflections on his great hero, his great mentor, and it seems a rather unwilling mentor, the American film critic Manny Farber. And uh, Farber had that famous principle of termite art, you know, a humble piece of craftsmanship that doesn't have any pretense of saying anything profound, but is nevertheless an evocative piece of Americana. And Goran seems to see some kind of kinship between these train guys and and their big train set and Manny Farber's termite art principle. And by the end of the movie, you get the sense that Goran has alienated the train guys. He's possibly alienated Manny Farber a little bit. (laughs) And now he's alienated his students. Everybody's a little bit tired of him. But, you know, the movie has a great sense of humor, and I had a great time watching it. So one discovery I made is one that I should have made a long time ago, but I was able to get my hands on a French Blu-ray and watch it uh, in remastered widescreen glory, and that is... A Hundred Horsemen, directed by Vittorio Catafavi. Oh, man. <laughs> this was his, I believe, his last feature directorial effort. And it has the novelty of being a medieval uh, set film, as opposed to like a peplum or like a sword and sorcery picture. And it is a wild, sprawling thing about an invasion of a society by an outsider force. But at the same time, it's telling like this novelistic and very fascinating way that kind of politics happen within this context, obviously uh, mirroring what was going on in 1964 all rendered in this beautiful, epic style. A lot of critics who tried to make a name of themselves in the 60s would say stuff like, the final battle in A Hundred Horsemen is better than what Orson Welles did in Chimes at Midnight. And I was shocked to learn that they are very similar to each other, but Katafavi did it a couple years before Chimes at Midnight. Well, you know, I'm always telling people that Katafavi is the real master and that Antonioni stole everything he knew <laughs> from Katafavi. And A Hundred Horsemen is also like super showy as well. Like that final battle, goes from color to black and white in like a few cuts so it kind of transitions trying to trick the audience that they don't realize it until it's you know a few seconds into it so a lot of stuff to love unfortunately i don't believe this has been released anywhere in north america but if you go looking online you could probably find a copy of it dubbed in english so highly recommend a hundred horsemen directed by vittorio catafavi <laughs> well there's only one filmmaker who excites me and that is sam newfield <laughs> I thought that you were going to say Woody Allen, and I'd like to recommend his new film as my last five of 2020. Oh, shit. Do I still have one more left? I can sub you in. I got one last one to go. So this is one. These are the kind of discoveries that I always dream of making, which is somebody just reached out on Facebook and was like, hey, have you seen this movie by this person? I haven't watched it yet, but the trailer looks funny. And I was like, no, I haven't. I guess I'll check it out. And I ended up watching it with a bunch of friends, uh, you know, streaming as we usually do during the weekends. And it completely uh, blew our hair back. It's a film that is written, directed, choreographed, shot by a martial artist named Shunny B, a Nepalese martial artist, actor, mogul, I will say. This movie is called Fight for Fury. And it is kind of the magical ego projects that you always dream of stumbling on, where the star is the greatest guy that has ever lived. (laughs) Everybody loves him. And it is filled with baffling filmmaking decisions. At one point, a giant dog comes into the shot. 
and then disappears never to be seen again and when it happened i and i believe someone's like i believe this is the reincarnation of our mother trying to give us a message i have never laughed harder than i did watching this movie fight for fury and i highly recommend people check it out it's just on amazon prime he just put it on there himself because anybody can upload stuff it was so good that afterwards we all watched his previous film that he made in the 90s. Uh, I don't have the title in front of me now, which is almost as insane because it's clear that this 90s movie, he or actually it was made in the 2000s, he dubbed and edited it himself recently because it has all the same editing ticks that Fight for Fury does, which was made in 2020, question mark? That's what the date on IMDb says. Highly recommend to oh, check so it out. so exciting to know that there are still big discoveries to be made. So that's it for 2020 films. And now onward to 2021, which is going to be just as bad, if not worse. Oh, can't wait. <laughs> yep. Is there anything that you're actually looking forward to in 2021? Either projects other than like life returning to some kind of stability where you can go out and meet people, which probably will not happen for another six to eight months. Gosh, I really don't know what I'm looking forward to. It feels like all of cinema, you know, just stopped for six months and now it's only kind of revving up again. <laughs> Not really. I feel like it's shutting down again. Is it? I mean, a lot of movies were being shot. So I, I kind of don't know what to look forward to. You know what was funny when Warner Brothers was like, listen, we're releasing everything on VOD and people were like, no, we talked about it a little bit. If you go through that list of movies, it's like everyone complaining would have never enjoyed these films. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes them easier to ignore for me if they're just on my home entertainment system. I guess I'm excited for cry macho the new clint eastwood movie which is on that list i'm sure clint is like i don't i don't i don't fucking care it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah he just wants to keep working if i stop making movies i'll die <laughs> and that movie could be out any week now i mean you know it, it started shooting in i think november and uh, knowing him we could get another one after that before the end of the year we've been saying this is probably the last film clint will make for the last 12 films it feels <laughs> i mean gosh he might even have less than 12 left in him I love how every time he appears in a movie now and he does star in this one, uh, it, it feels like the new Unforgiven. It's like, oh, it's the last one, you know, it's the last hurrah. And he's made about like 25 last hurrahs at this point, And I never get tired of it. I remember like trouble with the curve. Uh, we'll never see Clint star after that. <laughs> and it's like, no, he still starred in The Mule after that. Well, I'm excited for Cry Macho. Oh, he plays a rodeo star. He's like 90 years old. I, I also think it's just incredible that like, I mean, I remember going to see The Mule in a theater and just just sitting there and thinking like, isn't it great that we're all here looking at an 88 year old man or whoever old he was like how often are this many people in a theater to see a man that old? I love that movie because people keep going, ah, oh, you look like Jimmy Stewart. And I was like, was somebody else cast in this movie that wasn't Clint Eastwood? And he was like, I don't want to change the script. This is the words we say. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for 2020. Burn in hell. Bad year. So as per usual, you can send us letters or questions or comments or maybe uh, mention your favorite film that you saw this year by contacting us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week what are we doing on our patreon will well we mentioned william friedkin earlier on this episode and we are talking about one of his most notorious films yes we are talking about the classic al pacino infiltrates the gay community movie and to bring some fresh perspective on a film directed by straight white guys you got two straight white guys to talk about it <laughs> 
you can check that out on Patreon. It is $5 a month. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. You get our whole back catalog. And I was shocked. We had never talked about William Friedkin before at length, other than this cruising episode that we just recorded. Well, it won't be the last time. No, definitely not. We have uh, episodes of The Guardian in us, right? His Evil Dead movie that he made. And definitely Jade. How could we forget Jade? I know we've got a lot of fans of The Hunted out there. I hear those DVDs still haunt bargain bins to this day. So next week, we're going to be talking about a director that unfortunately recently passed away and that a letter writer recommended us doing just, I feel it feels like a few episodes ago. That is Joan Micklin Silver. Am I saying that right? The middle name Micklin? Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. Yeah, definitely. You know what? We'll find out by next week. She is a director that has always been kind of there, but she never had that big hit, it feels, other than Crossing Delancey, which is the only title that I'm like, oh, I've heard that one before. But I'm going to say, Will, that you've never seen any of her movies. That is correct. Another shameful blind spot. And I know that Chilly Scenes of Winter is a favorite of many's. So I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Highly recommend that one. So we'll definitely be watching Chilly Scenes of Winter and Crossing Delancey and probably a few others to just get a better perspective of her as a director. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank our Patreon subscribers. And today I'd like to do something special, which is I am going to read the name of every one of our currently active Patreon subscribers. So buckle up, because this will be a mispronunciation bonanza. I would like to thank Sinjin, Chris Barabay, ThatShelf.com, Jacob, Cameron Maitland, Zach Tennant, Tim Schofield, Kevin Roy, Albert Davis, Jacob Peterson, Rick Descartes, David Springfield, April Lemansky, Brandon Lim, Andrew Ford, Tom Golden, David Dean, Terry McCarthy, Thomas Rostock, Daryl Bartlett, Jack Frayne Reed, Chan John, Ethan Vespi, Graham, Etienne Caput, Jesse Shira, Jessen Fox, John Paul McKenna, Gregory, Nate in St. Paul, Cinema Zombie, Dustin Eisman, Marquis de Suave, Gart, Chris Chan, Liam James, Dom, Sinicola, Borgia Perez, William Jones, John Semley, Alex Griffith, Yoon Stewart, Sean Glynis, Jordan Christenberg, Amy Ziad Buasi, Alexander Ross, Daniel Acosta, Michael Chow, Matt Kludge, William Walker, William Buckingham, Zach H., Will C., Emmett Crudus, Emil Dirks, Juha Matula, Kevin Senny, Scotty Gilmer, Thomas Johnson, J.P. McDevitt, Marco Balaban, Turka Yulinen, David Ibister, Stuart Shepard, Tim Vermeulen, Trey McKinley, Guy Nelson, Ian Keith, Joe, Joe McGregor, Roy Den Boer, Stephen Vag, Daniel Benoit, Ralph, Alec Berg, Ed Begley Jr., CWW, Alan Butt, Nathaniel Hendricks, Aaron Dawson, Matthew Gadsby, Alex Lard, Ted Roland, Joe, Callum, Harris Frost, Bennett Glantz, Zach Fowler, Kay Parrington, William Nair Plasto, Brent Oliver, Jeffrey Jones, Rick Kane, Philip DeClude, Juan Damian, Thomas, Chase P. Bernstein, David, Hank Okazaki, Ned Grade, Jordan Cox, Clint Isinger, The Dread Lottery, Wolf Walden, Michael Frollo, Sean Enright, GC, William Modsley, Sideburn, Nason Wisnicki, Zachary Ainsley, Michael Carroll, Andrew Bolsover, Joe Kickass, Evan Furness, Dove Sounds, Theodore Schultz, Todd Fraser, Alex Clyes, Justin Haley, Peter Gurn, Jane Smith, Nick, Sadie Carter, Joe Greenwood, Charles, Jacob, Philip Siegel, Amy Fornias, Josh LaBelle, Ailey Fornias, Josh LaBelle, Matthew Thomas, Felix Dembinski, Guy Davidson, BDA, Tim, Gormless, Travis, Cody Johnson, James Baker, Joe Clark, Jason Bacon, Jacob Spence, Sean White, Jeremy Keyes, A Hack Fraud, Daryl Atkinson, Evan D. Amaral, Andy Stone, Daniel Ross, Abash Pudding, Alex Smith, Ian Moss, Richard Harris, Emal 
Falco, James Cullen, Apple Ventus, Eric Trelinsky, William Cumby, Will Purity Pond, AJ Katsanas, Ricknit, Anthony Vitemia, Anders Boska, Joseph DeLeo, Manuel Labs, Graham Paul Donovan, Nick Barzak, Greg McDonald, Gloomy Cleric, Chris Gillian, Douglas Ketchum, Henry Belgler, Josh, Evan Laffer, Curtis, Alex, John Campbell, Chris Waljay, Joner, Mike Wood, Sean Doris, Kristen Wheeler, McWayne, Sebastian Lapre, Anton Person, Flyglare, Charles F., Jean Robin, Hunter Sawyer, Jacob Durasco, Jim Campbell, Chiaro K. Walsh, Leo Nichols, Robert, Andrew Kishta, John Carter, Joshua Clark, Harry Westergaard, Vincent de Perez, James Majur, Lauren Kilgore, Javier Nupision, Louis Samra, Party with Pizzi, Marcus Rose, Thomas A. Scott, AJ Serrano, Theodore Fox, Samuel James Adams, Matthew Farley, Brendan White, Kyle Bycroft, Mert, John Stein, Eric Rutledal, James Waters, Liz Ryerson, Robert McDonald, JCF, Elliot Toome, Alexander Lee, Kevin Johnston, Lee Henderson, Richard Chandler, Joseph Torchinski, Connor Meehan, J.R. Sully, Emil Lechvi, Neil Fuller, Carl Kirkendall, Pat, Gregory Ellis, Charles Smarr, Tommy Scarpinato, Matthew Elanger, AJS124, James Renforce, Frederick, Luke, Jack Book, Avery Brooks, Donald Patterson, Alex Lines, Cole Flowers, Alex Wilson, Adam W., Alexander Rifford, Ellie Osman, Brendy Murray, OBC, Alex Holmes, Jeremiah. Maya McDonald, Conrad Falco, Robert Krantz, Matthew Blenkar, CF, Dustin Bullock, Dave M, Hayden Michael Cole, Stephen Calvert, Daniel McFarlane, Adam Bishop, Tony Scott Fan 1, Ben Bortred, Nietzsche Zimmerman, IC, Just a Dot, Nathaniel Tyson, Luke Welling, Ivy Parsons, Nru, John Petrovich, Agent S, Thomas Shepard, Johnny Mockney, Ellie, Eric Ward, A. Bancroft, Sadie Hawkins Pod, Adam Nab, Jennifer Gibbons, Sebastian Lapre, Daniel Newton, Andrew Knight, CMPN, Charlie Yeo, Steve Putz, Ian Elliott, Ben Turnbull, Johannes Schoeninger, Sean Fuller, Annette, Mark Watson, Scott Morris, Garris Marley, Colin Griffiths, Aaron Whiteley, Patrick Kennedy, Ben, Louis Waters, Don Smorchma, Luke Devereaux, Soya, Bradley Roy, Eric Jarvis, Lisa Silver, Peter Koplowski, Chase East, Jesse Briskin, Jacob Bowles, Andy Willick, Nicholas Reed, Buzzkill Squad, Stephen Douglas, Michael Chiechi, Quinn Henderson, James Morgan Wells, Pete Kahn, Kyle McStay, Marcus, Michael Davies, Paul Ryan High, Michael Lane, Benjamin Asprey, Matt Lambert, Chris Barry Goss, Surgery Head, Ty Trillinger, Michael Zaneski, Jay Nee, Jesse Ferguson, Chris, Cameron Gunn, Jay Long, Matthew Welsh, Thomas Anders, Spajones123, Julian Kopkus, and Christopher Sienko. Thank you all for being patrons. We could not do this without you. And now... We return you to your regular scheduled programming. Perusing the Gold Ninja video releases this month, I see that one of them is the classic Adam Thorne joint. Uh, I'm describing every movie I bring up as the classic movie. Because <laughs> it's an ironic uh, moniker. Uh, but, but it's not, because this actually is a classic. It's Personal Space Invader. And uh, this was a film that you were heavily involved in, and uh, it emerged from unique circumstances. Do you want to talk, tell the folks about it so a little bit? So Personal Space Invader, the way that Adam likes to say it is that he saw how depressed I was not finishing the feature film Teddy Bomb, that he wanted to just show me that we could finish a movie by shooting it over one weekend. He just said, Justin, I just need your help. You can act in it if you want and just shoot it and edit it and then you'll finish a movie it'll be super easy no pressure and that's what i ended up doing now did we finish it in a weekend no it took about i think seven days to complete with like little pockets of shooting here or there did we fight throughout it because i didn't understand a lot of the things that he wanted to do and he would say stuff like uh justin you're trying to be too fancy or complicated with gags and camera moves <laughs> yes that also happened and you can see the end result on blu-ray because when Black Friday came around, I was like, I want to put something else out. I want to do like, you know, what Vinegar Syndrome or all those other companies do. And I was like, I got, I got, 
personal space invader sitting right here and i did i co-star in the movie so i am in like three quarters of the picture <laughs> you know uh that i'm not behind the camera when it's slightly out of focus <laughs> because i had to hand it off to somebody else do you feel a sense of authorship in the movie at all because the way you're describing it it sounds kind of like the chunking express to the ashes of time that was yes Teddy Vaughn. i do because adam when i showed up he had like two pages written and he freely admits this he didn't have a script <laughs> And because I, I was like, I'll only do this if it's feature length. And when I saw what he had, I was like, oh, my God, this is not going to be a feature length movie. So we just made up a bunch of stuff. Like I said, we butted heads a lot throughout it because he didn't want to be too fancy or make it look like he's trying to make something fun, which is a very like con- conflict uh, that uh, comes up when you make movies. And what's interesting is that like a lot of the problems that we had, I mean, we're still friends to this day. We actually hashed them out on like a 40 minute uh, interview that I did with him that's on this Blu-ray. Yeah, like the movie has like a long five minute one take scene because me and the main actor, while Adam was like doing something up in his apartment, we just went out and shot it on our own and included it in the movie because I wanted it to get to at least over an hour. And there's a whole scene that shot just by myself. And I actually didn't tell Adam that I shot it because I knew if I did, he said, no, don't do it. I don't want this in the movie because I wanted to get over that hour mark. And it's in that film. And what's also fascinating about the project is that Adam, a year later, went and shot his own Personal Space Invader 2 without my involvement at all creatively. He showed up one day and I play a head in a bag, but that's all that I had to do with it. And it's included on this Blu-ray. So did the movie succeed in its sort of aim of re-energizing you creatively? It did because it was a bunch of firsts, which was the first feature film that I completed on my own. And the reason that it got completed was that Adam, before he started shooting, he booked a date at the Trash Palace screen. It. So he's like, it's got to be done by then, Justin. A lot of people are going to show up. and We won't have anything to show. And also, it was the first time that me and Emily did sound. We dubbed the whole movie. I did all the sound effects myself, which I continue to hate to have to do to this day. And it was the first score that Emily Milling, who did the score for Teddy Bomb and uh, Impossible Horror, did for the first time. So, folks, if you want to see just a pure transmission from Justin's brain, uh, filtered through Adam's brain, uh, check that out. And yeah, there's like the commentary tracks we recorded at the time. There's like making of featurettes that we did because I put together like a big DVD of it. And so I just got all the special features from that. And what's interesting, it's the first time that I can say that like I'm uh, releasing a personal film and in high definition and it's never been seen that way before because it only ever came out to DVD. I actually went back to the original timeline of the movie from like six years ago and had to like futz with a bunch of stuff to make sure it could export, but then re-exported the whole thing onto Blu-ray. So this isn't a George Lucas situation, is it? No, I did not change anything. I did not do any edits or that would have to involve sitting down and watching the entire film again. So no, thank you. (laughs) There's a few clips that are standard definition of the movie because I just didn't have the visual effects, like a few seconds here or there, but that's pretty much it. But no, I, why would that George Lucas thing makes no sense to me why would you want to go back and change something that's already done yeah huge waste of time you already won yeah buy personal space invaders on blu-ray to get that that the chunk of Justin DeClue that's maybe missing because if you look on IMDb I'm not credited as an actor or cinematographer or anything I think I'm credited as an editor on the film but that's pretty much it 